Beloved, whether it is our coming to faith in Jesus Christ or living out that faith, it is Christ, his dwelling in us, and his gracious power that is at work both from beginning to last. There is not one second of your salvation that is ever dependent upon your efforts alone. Everything that we need, we have received in Jesus Christ. Everything that we are is Jesus Christ. Everything that we are called to do, we have already in Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are indeed in the firm grip of God in Jesus Christ, whether it's the front, whether it's the back, whether it's one side or the other, we are encircled by his grace and by his love. That is part of what this passage that we are looking at today is all about as we continue to think and and remind ourselves about what does it mean that we have named our church Grace Covenant Church. Our text this morning is from 2 Corinthians 5. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. The title of the sermon is Grace Covenant, Ambassadors of Covenant Grace. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might, not, might, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, your gospel is so amazing, and it is so exhaustively complete. Renew us in that this day, not only for how we relate to you, not only how we view ourselves and one another within these walls, but how we understand our calling as it is a continuation of what you began before the foundations of the world, which you have made yes and amen in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Lord, convince us to be people who die in order that we might be people who live for others. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A name is so important for understanding our identity. A name is so important for understanding our calling. Because identity and calling are not two different things. They are just different expressions of the same thing. And that same thing is that God has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. And God, who has been working within history from the beginning, is continuing to work in history through us. There are many avenues, there are many modes in which the, uh, our triune God works and accomplishes his will within reality. And one of the things that we, are, uh, that we remember well, I think, here is that God works through his word. God uh, takes his word and he makes it active and he makes it accomplish everything that he wants it to accomplish. But beloved, he also takes us and he uses us to accomplish his purposes. He uses his word but he also uses our words. This is one of the most, I think, clear passages in the scripture that help us to understand God's heart and helps us to understand what he is forming and shaping our hearts for. This is a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also how it is the gospel that forms the worldview in which you and I understand our purpose in this world, our place in this life. It is not, the gospel is not only God's purpose for your salvation, it is your purpose for how you live and breathe as one who is saved. Paul is wrestling with a church whose worldview has not been thoroughly transformed according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is writing to a church that uh, has bits and pieces of good theology, 
but they also continue to live and function in worship, in fellowship, in discipleship, and in mission according to values that come from the world. Values that come from the philosophy of men. Values that come from a misunderstanding of Old Testament theology and teaching. They have not been thoroughly, no pun intended, reformed according to God's truth in how to understand God, how to understand themselves, how to understand the world. This is what we mean by Worldview, And what I have been endeavoring to do with us is encourage us to reevaluate our worldview as we as a church believe that is summarized with this amazing reality of the covenant of grace. Man from the beginning exchanged what God was offering for what they could get from God without also having to include God. That they exchanged, Paul says in Romans 1, God's immortal glory for the things of this earth, cutting God out of the, of the fellowship, of the relationship. And what this passage reminds us of is that the reason that things are different than what Adam and Eve set into place when they sinned and when they exchanged God's glory for the trinkets of creation, the reason that things have not just continued on, never changing from that point of rebellion, is not because of us, but because of God. God seeing that we had fallen into the estate of sin and misery and not wanting us to stay there. And so God initiated from the very beginning of our fall. He initiated in coming to Adam and Eve. He initiated in making a promise. He initiated by, by putting that promise in the form of a covenant, of a pledge where he bound himself, the infinite one, to finite creatures who were in rebellion. He bound himself in a promise. And that promise is that he would send us a hero. He would send us a champion. He would send us one who would do what Adam failed to do. And he would do so much more. In, Romans, or in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is bringing this covenant of grace and its importance for the ministry of the church and for the worldview of God's people into focus because of this problem that existed in this church whose worldview was still more shaped by the philosophy of the world rather than the realities of the gospel. There are false teachers who are teaching Christianity through a worldly lens. And the, and the issue is that they are judging things according 
to the worldly perspective. Paul says they don't understand these false teachers. They don't understand the significance of the new covenant. And so their focus is on worldly things. Their focus is on outward appearance rather than what is in the heart. Their focus for ministry is impressive speaking. Who can use the rhetoric of the day? Who can weave together these beautiful words? Even though there may not be much substance at all that's being communicated through those words, but who can give the beautiful presentation? Who can wow people with their ability to speak and wax poetically? See, that's what real ministry was. Can you speak well? Can you put together something that is nice to listen to and, and is it enjoyable and does it, does it pique my, my intellectual curiosity? Does, does it move me emotionally? Does it make me want to do things differently? Not because of the truth of the content, but on the basis of how eloquent it can be. Effective ministry is built upon impressive speaking. It's built upon impressive appearance. You've got to look the part. You've got to look in such a way that people will look at you and be impressed. A real pastor is one who looks like a real pastor. There is emphasis on outward appearance there is emphasis on ability to speak using the rhetoric of the day. But Paul says, all the way back in chapter 2, we, ministers of the new covenant, are not peddlers of God's word, but we are men of sincerity as commissioned by God. And in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We don't commend ourselves, we commend Christ. We don't call you to draw attention to us, we call you to draw your attention to Christ. And so therefore we have renounced uh, disgraceful, underhanded methods of ministry. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but we do things by the open, open statement of the truth. We do not proclaim ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so our confidence is not in these outward, worldly metrics of ministry. Our confidence is in God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant by the Spirit who gives life. That is how ministers of the new covenant do things. You see, because of the exchange of God's glory for the things of the world apart from God that plunged men and women into the estate of sin and misery, it plunged them into a state of death. And there is only one thing that can turn a dead person back into an alive person. And that is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Not a really good looking pastor who can speak really eloquent sermons. It is a minister who will just entrust himself to God and speak the truth and let the Spirit take that truth and do with it what he may. We don't look at worldly things. We look at the reality of the gospel. Now what Paul does here is he tells us that we need to do this first with ourselves. We are no longer in Adam. If you are in Christ by faith, you are no longer in Adam. You are in Jesus Christ. Adam brought you death. Christ has brought you resurrection. Adam brought you sin and misery. Jesus Christ has brought you grace and presence and power. And all of this, because of God's initiation and because of God's reconciliation. We no longer view ourselves as we once did. When we wrestle with sin, we don't view ourselves as those who are slaves to sin. And look, I'm telling you, every one of you, including me, does this. We have some sins that we think like, okay, I've kind of got a pretty good handle on you know, this one or that one. That's not really my, my problem. You know, I'm doing okay. But we all have some of those that we know we're not doing well with. And the temptation is when you go to God for the thousandth time that hour to confess that sin, you start wrestling within yourself of, I'm a slave to this thing. Look, I know you do that because you come and you tell me. And I'm so glad you do. When am I ever going to get free of this? Guess what? In Christ, you already are free. You don't experience the level of freedom that you desire. But that's not because you're a slave. It's because you are not living in the freedom and in the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. You do this. I do this. We don't view ourselves any longer in any other way than in Christ I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Period. End of sentence. And all of this because of God's initiation and reconciliation. The initiation and the covenant of grace. The reconciliation that he has effected forevermore through Jesus Christ. He made a promise and he has fulfilled that promise. And as Paul here explains, uh, using Old Testament types and shadows... 
He helps us understand what he has accomplished in Jesus Christ that was promised in Genesis 3.15, which was put on display through the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament, and what came to fruition in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus Christ, we are told here, at the end of the passage, one of the most amazing realities that I hope just strikes you. That he who knew no sin became sin for you. Think about that. Now look, in the history of the church, this verse has been so scandalous that people have tried to take away some of the emphasis. And and what they'll say is, well, because Paul is utilizing Old Testament typology, that what Paul really is trying to do here is say that Jesus became the sin offering. Okay, great. And if you think that takes away the weight of what's being said, it just means you don't understand the Old Testament typology. Because when you took that lamb, And you took it and you put your hand on the head of that lamb that was taking your place in becoming that sin offering for you. What was happening was a double imputation we call in theological speak. That your sin was now being put on this animal. And that animal's clean status was now being granted to you. So... If Jesus became the sin offering, guess what he did? He became, in God's eyes, in the midst of the sacrifice, sin. And he judged Jesus. Not because of Jesus' sin. He had no sin. But your sin and my sin was put on him. And the Father did what his justice required of him. And this is why Martin Luther, in in writing to a friend that was struggling with his salvation, that was really struggling with having confidence because he was still part of the Roman Catholic Church even though he had embraced the teachings of Luther. But in the midst of the conflict, he just struggled to know with where he stood. And, and, And Luther wrote to him and said, look, what you have to do is you have to learn to sing to Jesus. You are my righteousness. I am your sin. Is that the song that fills your hearts as you contemplate the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you? Jesus' righteousness is your righteousness. Not part of it. Not part of Christ's righteousness. All of it. And all of his righteousness becomes all of your righteousness. But that's because all of your sin became his when he took it. And when he took it upon himself on the cross. That is a greater exchange than when we exchanged God's glory for the trinkets of the world apart from him. 
He did a greater exchange than Jesus exchanged the glory that he was due as God for a time and he humbled himself and he came and he served even to the point of death on the cross. We gave up God's glory for something so less. He gave up the glory he was due so that we could have that glory You see, reconciliation is about exchange. We exchange something in giving it away. God has exchanged something in giving his son. And the importance of that for us, beloved, is not simply our salvation. It's not simply our identity. but it is absolutely the significance of our calling and as our mission as a church of those who have died in Christ and been raised in his resurrection. Because notice what Paul says. God is continuing to initiate to sinners. And God is continuing his mission of reconciliation. But what does Paul tell us? He tells us that we now become part of that and it calls for us to make a new exchange. We now as those who are controlled by the love of Jesus Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Paul tells us that because of this work of Jesus Christ, we, we are controlled, is what the ESV says, or I think compelled uh, by some other translations. The, the picture is that we are now hemmed in by God's grace. The, the word here means to be encircled by. And to be encircled in such a way that we can't get out. That God has us encircled. That he has us entrenched. That he has us hemmed in by Christ's love. So that in Christ we are surrounded, encircled, controlled. This is where we get the idea of that we are ruled by God's love in Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the love of Christ, when it makes you new in Christ, that you are held now as a captive to grace and to love. You see, where the sin of Adam and Eve plunged us into the estate of sin and death, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ now brings us into the estate of grace and life. It is a status. It is a mode of existence where we are now no longer dead, but we are alive. And yet, because Christ is the one who dwells within us, the way that he chooses to dwell within us 
is in repeating how he dwelled on earth so that even as he died to himself to love others, he continues to die through us in order that we love others as well. The love of Christ controls us, which means we do not live for ourselves. We live for him and we live for others. I think we said something about that at the beginning of the service. That we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And beloved, all of that is absolutely possible now because of God's love hemming us in from every side. What this means for us now, he tells us, is that one, one picture of who we are and what we're called to be is that we are ministers of reconciliation. The exchange that God has made in Jesus Christ, we are called to embody and to express to others by making our exchange and giving up our lives in service to him. And the service that we now live, very specifically here, is a service of reconciliation. Now this is huge. There are so many things that Paul could have chosen to use here to describe who we are in representing Christ to the world. What he doesn't say is that we are ministers of Christ's rule. And our job now is to go around and condemn everybody and try to get them to behave different. What he says is that we are ministers of reconciliation, which means we go to people in order to help them be drawn back together, not to further separate. It is so much easier to have a ministry of separation. But what we're called to is a ministry of reconciliation. Now, beloved, that has to start within this room. It has to start right here. If God has given this stuff up in order to be brought back together with you, It is absolutely essential and vital that you are giving up things in order to remain and to embody and to exhibit that reconciliation that you have together in Christ. This doesn't mean we're not going to fight. We are going to fight. But how do we respond to the fighting? Do we initiate, do we go after the person who has offended me? Or do we go to our neighbor? Do we go to this person? Do we go to that person? Start talking about it. We are ministers of reconciliation. And if we can't promote that reconciliation within a group where we already already have this reconciliation, then how are we going to promote reconciliation 
to those who are outside these walls who hate our Savior. And as Jesus has told us, as they hate him, they do ultimately hate us. If we can't do it with those inside, how are we doing to do it with those outside? But the reality is this. When we rightly understand that we are new in Christ, then we remember that all the power and grace that is needed to live this out is something we already possess. We don't die to ourselves in order to somehow gain some kind of grace and power to go in reconciliation. Jesus died for that part. We die to ourselves by going to the person and saying, you hurt me. Or, if you become aware that you did the hurting, you initiate and say, you know what? I hurt you. And I'm looking around a room and I've had conversations with almost everybody in this room. And I know that there are people who need to be going to one another. My plead with you is that you will entrust yourself to what Christ has done so that you can go and be an agent of his love to someone you've hurt or to someone who has hurt you. Ministers of reconciliation. In the Greek here, this word really means friendship. You are a minister of friendship with God. Friendship through only one way, and that's Christ. But not only are you a minister of reconciliation, you are an ambassador. Now, ambassador here brings with it that you are one who's called to be an envoy. You are called called as someone who is speaking on behalf of someone else. And what through what we know in terms of what the New Testament teaches us about union with Christ, it's Jesus that you just don't only speak on behalf of, it's Jesus who speaks in and through you. Notice that Paul says here that we are ambassadors of God's grace. We're ministers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of God's, of God's grace. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. God making his appeal through us. Now, first of all, please let it hit you that Paul describes God as making appeals. We all know that God is sovereign. We all know that he's providential. We all know that he has all power. We all know that he is the one who, in his initiation, sovereignly brings someone out of death and into life. But make no mistake here, Paul describes the way in which God does that as making an appeal. He makes his appeal through us, which means what? We are supposed to be making an appeal. When we talk to people and when we are seeking to help draw them out of a life of of love and service to themselves and, and to receive the love of Jesus Christ, we are to make an appeal to this. Calling people to know here's what God has done for sinners. You do not have to continue on your path 
of living for yourself and experiencing all the stuff that's going on in your life because of that. We make an appeal. We, we don't just coldly say, well, you know, here's the gospel. Take it or leave it. I mean, I know God's, God's the only one that can really do anything with this anyway, so just, you know, here it is. Right, in the history of the church, there's been a couple of misapplications of, of certain theologies that have led to different forms and versions of hyper-Calvinism, right? We're not going to make a free offer of the gospel because we don't know who the, who the elect is. So we're, we'll just avoid offering the gospel to someone who's not elect, you know. Paul says no. God's making an appeal. He's making his appeal through you. We don't refrain from sharing the gospel, and we certainly don't also the other hyper-Calvinist mistake and, and, and share that gospel without an earnest concern for the person that we're talking to. We plead with others because God is pleading in and through us. We are ambassadors who go out into this world as those who have participated in the worship of the heavenly places to take that, to take the best of our kingdom, to take the best of our king and to take that out into the world and to call people to be renewed in friendship with God by them giving up their self-destructive self-initiation and desire of controlling themselves and receive the exchange of what God is offering them in Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, this means that with our lives and with our mouths, we have to represent our gracious God and Father we have to represent what Jesus Christ has done in giving up his glory for a time and taking our sin upon himself, becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We have to exchange our personal wants, our personal desires, our personal values, our personal preferences for culture, our personal this and that and this and another. And we give it up in order to embrace the worldview that the Christ who lives in me is the Christ who dies in order to bring others life. God has been on a mission from the beginning and our calling in Jesus Christ brings with it the fruit of his mission and the partnership of that mission. In everything, your attitudes, your words, your emotions, your thoughts, right? What we said, thought, word, or deed at the beginning of the, the service, all of that as an embodiment of the grace, of the covenant of grace, in order to become an expression of that grace. We make an appeal with others 
And so this is why, beloved, our website says the story of redemptive history is one that is characterized by a clear focus on the realization of a divine plan. In the life of Jesus, we find a keen sense of purpose and focus. Even as a child, Jesus had a strong sense of self-awareness as to the missional nature of his life. Indeed, if ever there was one, Jesus was a man on mission. He was a God-man on mission. And so then later on our website, it says, your sense of purpose, your mission will shape the choices that you make. It will dictate where and how you spend your time, energy, resources, and enthusiasm. That's what a Christian worldview does. That's what a gospel worldview does is it explains your identity and it explains your calling. And throughout all of what we have been talking about, about our name being Grace Covenant, as an expression of the covenant of grace, of what God promised and what God accomplished in Jesus Christ, there are four E's that I want us to embrace. Well, sorry, I can't say that because that's the first E. There are four E's that I want to shape the vocabulary of our identity and purpose here at Grace Covenant Church. Because throughout these sermons on the covenant of grace, what I have attempted to emphasize without always explicitly saying is this. We are called to embrace the promises of God as they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We, we have, it has to start with embracing it. It has to start with us receiving it. It has to start with us trusting it. It has to start there. We have to believe this and receive it and stand upon it. We have to embrace this and we need to embrace it into the depths of our souls and our being as God's people. We embrace. And as Reformed people, we absolutely have to experience God's grace in the presence of what he offers us in Jesus Christ through the means of grace. We embrace, we experience, and then we're called to embody that what we have embraced and what we have embodied becomes pictured as we enflesh those things. And then, lastly, we extend we embrace, we experience, we embody, and then we extend. We take it out. And we invite others, and we plead with others, and we call others to receive what God has done in Jesus Christ. Beloved, please let your presentation of what God has done be filled with what God has given up to accomplish these things. So that in how we live, what we say, how we minister as a church, 
will all come from embracing, experiencing, embodying, and extending. This is who we are, and this is what we're called to do. Beloved, we indeed are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Go forth as those who have tasted of the heavenly places in order to invite others to taste of that with you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. What you have done in accomplishing our salvation as a, as a fulfilling of your mission and then the privilege of being invited to participate in that mission with you. So much of our lives, though, Heavenly Father, is not lived out in a conscious way in which our time, our treasures, and our talents are given over to you and to you alone. And Father, you know this. And though it is true, you continue to love us, you continue to renew us in your grace, and you continue to patiently invite us to join you in what you are doing. And so, Father, may that grace that has accomplished our salvation also be a grace that we can use with ourselves and one another so that we would not put pressures upon ourselves that lead to guilt and to shame, but that we would live in the freeing power of Jesus Christ. And Father, bless our efforts as we strive to be ministers of reconciliation within these walls and without. Fill us with such a love of Christ. Fill us with such an, an, an experience of your love for us in Christ that we would indeed die to ourselves and live for you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.